0: Hey, we're into. Um, we are doing a three-week series on idols. Um, some of you will have seen the little thing online of the little like Chinese takeaway cat throwing its arm back and forth. Um, and um, and and why are we going to do this? Well, um, why we're doing this is because we have a real sense of God um, moving in a powerful way and beginning to, to move in a different way in our community. But often, what for, like, what precedes a move of God, is repentance. Um, and, um, and that was actually before Christ came What was it? That John the Baptist was sent ahead of Christ To say make a straight way for the Lord So in a lot of ways for us What we're doing this for For three weeks Is to go Let's make a straight way for the Lord If God wants to do something here Let's name all the crap we don't want to name <laughs> um, Let's name the stuff within ourselves um, So the first week we're gonna, I'm going to talk this week About what is Basically what is idolatry What is an idol uh, Next week Rose is going to look at How we live in in an idolatrous culture, and then in the last week we're going to do, which is this is like the worst idea for church leaders ever, but we're going to talk about what are the idols of this church, um, and we're going to like pull apart the stuff that we are uh, welded to, and that we hold above our allegiance to Christ. Um, and so basically, what we want to do, we want to clear a straight way for the Lord. Um, and um, and I think um, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be hard. Um, and um, so yes, so this first week around basically like what is an idol, what is idolatry. Um, Where I want to begin with that is uh, Exodus 32. Does anyone have a Bible on them? You got an app? Yeah, and you also have a loud voice? Yeah. Would you like to stand with your app and your loud voice? Um, And what I would like you to do is I'm going to get you to read from verse 1 to verse 20. Verse 1 to verse 20. Exodus 32 verse 1 to verse 20 and maybe the people around if you want to sometimes I find it easier to listen to scripture when I just close my eyes and kind of visualize it do what you need to do um what was your name sorry Bryce Bryce everyone give it up for Bryce come on Um, okay Bryce is at in his loud voice Exodus 32 1 to 20
1: When the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed to him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a Fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down. Because your people that you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people when you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and I'll be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened.
0: Keep going to uh, 20.
1: 20. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and The tablets were the work of God, the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, It was the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory, it is the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the he took the calf that people had made and burned it
0: in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink. Oh. Cool. Thanks, Bryce. It's a really easy uh, piece of scripture there. Um, yeah. So, so what happens in this passage? God has been incredibly faithful to to the Israelites. He has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. When when they were hemmed in by the enemies behind with the Red Sea in front of them, he parted the Red Sea and they walked through it. They have been out in the desert. When they needed food, it fell from the sky. When they needed water, they hit rocks and it fell out. God has been faithful again and again and again to them. And in this passage here today, Moses has gone up the mountain to meet with God and he's been up there a long time. And the people decide to make their own God. They pull together all their jewelry, they create a golden calf, they melt down this jewelry, they create this golden bull, an idol. Meanwhile, God tells Moses that the people have made a mess of things, and there's this weird little moment, which we can talk about in another sermon, where Moses has to convince God not to smite his nation. Um, and, uh, and so when Moses gets down, he is pissed. Like, he is really angry, even destroys the tablets that God had written upon and so he melts down the idol again, he gets the dust, he puts it into some water and he makes all the people drink it. Um so that's a summary of what happens there. And I think within this passage we have a great summary of what it is that idolatry looks like, not just for the people then, but for all of us. And there are so many of those pictures in the story of the Exodus and the, the narrative of heading towards the promised land, which yes were a story once then for a nation, but are a story for us today. So first thing, I want to look at that verse, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So Moses has been up the mountain for a long time. And this is a people who come from slavery. This is an oppressed people, a people who have faced All manner of dangers, snakes, famines, enemies chasing them, like everything possible. And so when we look at the stories of the Israelites in the desert, so often the questions they're asking of God is how will you provide for our basic needs? How will you provide for the food we need? How will you provide for the water we need to drink? How will you provide for the clothes we need to wear? How will you protect us from our enemies? How will we be safe? So when Moses heads up and says, I'll be back later, and then he's up there a little too long, their thought is, Moses is the one who speaks to God. Who is looking out for us while Moses is up there? Who is making sure we have clothes to wear, food to eat, water to drink, and we're protected from our enemies? No one. And so from this place, they decide we need another God. We need protection. We need someone. Like it's a very, they're out here in the wilderness. It's a very natural impulse that our God is not present. Who is protecting us? Who will we get to protect us? The first thing I want to say about idols that we see from this is that idols arise from our need for security. Idols arise from our need for security. In our need for security, we cease to trust the intangible God and create a God of our own. or images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. in the apparent absence of God, where they fear for how they will survive, their impulse <coughs> for security leads them to create their own God. And I think that's true of everyone ever. An idol is something we've built, and we've given it the glory that God deserves. And that thing we've built is about security. Idols are the things that help us sleep at night. Here's something you can remember. Idols are the things that help us sleep at night. I remember a few years ago when uh, Anna and I were working at this youth trust, Zeal, which some of you will know about. And at Zeal, we were all doing it for the love, so we weren't paid much. Um, And um, and so we were... um, We were going hard, all hours God made, serving these young people, maybe getting paid 10 or 15 hours a week and just just making it work. And I remember that you know when you're in these places of, of almost unsafety or insecurity, where sort of everything's a little bit unknown, you look for the thing around you that you can grab hold of. And I can remember getting a little bit obsessed with this particular line in my bank account, which was like, I had this savings account and I needed for some reason in my head, to just keep that over 1k and I could sleep at night. But when I felt it dropping below 1k, there was a certain kind of an anxiety that crept into my heart. There was a fear. Does anyone kind of relate to this? Yeah, a little bit. Yes, we know this one, right? Um, And so what I actually had to do was develop this practice as a young youth worker of giving away my savings account. Um, because basically, you have to destroy the idol for it not to take a hold of you. You have to destroy the false thing that is helping you sleep at night. So we would have these young people who come and started hanging out in our youth centre, and we had nothing for them to play with. So we're like, ah, oh, crap! They need an Xbox. So we'd just be like, out with the savings. And then we took a crew to Cambodia, and we ended up a thousand dollars short on. Um, on their airfares and so we're like gone with the savings Um, and it wasn't some act of like holy generosity (laughs) it was more like a I need somewhere to put this before it corrupts me I need somewhere to put this before it corrupts me, in some ways it was a selfish action for my soul, not a generous action, it's like you guys can have the money but really this is about me this is about the state of my soul and and good that you get an Xbox and get to go to Cambodia great Um, (laughs) So an idol is often the thing that helps you sleep at night. So we had to set up practices in our lives to regularly dismantle the idols, and we still live some of those practices in our marriage today. And basically the the practices that dismantle idols you can always identify because your friends and your family will tell you you're batshit crazy. Um, That's a a good barometer for that one. Um, You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. When you give away the thing which helps you sleep at night, you almost always discover your true heart and your true intentions that were hiding and lurking behind that thing that you were using to prop up your security and to be able to sleep at night. Point one, idols arise from our need for security. And one thing I'm not going to do tonight, I'm going to use examples from my own life, but I'm not going to tell you what your idols are because I actually don't think that's helpful to like give you a, a shopping list of things you should be looking for in your life. So hear what I'm saying. If it applies to you, great. But this is not Scotty saying this is how you do it. You all need to give away your savings account. But maybe you do. <coughs> Point two, um, second verse. Aaron answered them. Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their errands and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So how was the idol made? All the jewellery, all the valuable things of the nation of Israel were melted down to form it. All the people had to pay, all the people had to give consent for that idol to be made. The idol wasn't made by some big far-off institution. It wasn't made by some faceless corporation. It was made by the individuals who said, we consent to giving our value in order that an idol will be made. Idols are not made by faceless institutions, which is what we often like to do as millennials, is blame this thing far off. No, 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 no. You and I make the idol. You and I consent to the idol. Why does slavery exist in the world today? Because you and I keep buying shit that we know is made by slaves. We consent with our gold, we consent with our jewellery that this idol will stand. That's no one else's fault but our own. And if we wanted to as humanity, we could dismantle the idol. We don't want to. We love cheap stuff. We love not having proximity to the people who suffer to make it. This is how an idol stands. This is how climate change is a thing. We're all participating. We're all melting down our gold. We're all, we're all sacrificing at the altar of the idols, and we don't give a shit. And we could change it. Part of us coming to terms with our idolatry is ceasing to blame some far-off mechanism that has nothing to do with us, that just provides a scapegoat for me to go on living as I am to acknowledge that I consented for the idol to be made. We consented to it, we melted down our gold, we melted down our jewellery. It's the same with every destructive idol in the world. And this is exactly how idolatry operated in Rome, actually, the time that Jesus was around. You know, a lot of us think about idols, we think of some big gold statue, something that we all like bow down to, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that kind of stuff, which Rose will talk about next week. Or we think about someone like Caesar, this government figure who kind of becomes this godlike figure. And in the Roman world, they had the cult of the emperor. The emperor who was worshipped and, and upheld and deified and so much of the way that Jesus lived, like the way that he rode the donkey into town, there's all these ways that he just parodies and gives a great big up yours to the empire and to the cult of the emperor. So you've got the big thing. And then the next step down was that, was the festivals and processions, which were these moments where the people would come together and celebrate the emperor and celebrate all their false gods, and they would be given bread and circuses and money and be excited by it. But the thing that sustained all of this were the practices at home, the daily practices that pledged allegiance to the idols. So, for example, if you look in the pagan cultic religion of of, of Rome at the time, they would have a god of the kitchen cupboard who was about provision. They would have a god of the field who was about the harvest. They would have a god of war. They would have a god of the hearth dedicated to their ancestors. They had set up their whole individual lives, the lives at home, around worship of the idol. And the thing is, if we were them, we wouldn't know we were doing it, and they didn't know they were doing it either, right? But it was these individual practices, these small acts of worship, that gave rise to the evil that was the cult of the emperor, These things were actually called oblations, the offerings which they were to make to these gods, which is where we get the word obligation from. some interesting stuff in there. So idols are formed not in the big grand decisions, but in the tiny everyday things we do to locate our value away from God and onto the golden calf. So it is, Jesus said again, where your treasure is, your heart is also. So the root of idolatry is not often expressed in us bowing down to something, but it's expressed in some of the thoughts that run through our heads when we stand in front of the mirror each morning. It's expressed in some of the motives as we check that little red circle on our app. It's expressed as we're scanning things at the checkout. These little things that we're not even aware of become practices of worship which result in our whole lives orbiting around an idol. I reckon home ownership in New Zealand is one of our idols. You can tell this because we're willing to lose proximity to our whānau, to our community. We're willing to change our jobs to get on the ladder. We're willing to give everything. We're willing to sacrifice almost all other freedoms to be on the ladder. And now that it's being taken away from us, we are furious. I'm not saying you can't own a home. It's all about motive. I can't discern your heart. But I'm saying I think as a culture, this has become an idol to us. It's those small actions we do every day that prop up the big thing. Idols begin in the home. Third thing, verse 19 and 20. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. See, the Israelites were not a stupid people. And generally, the people who worship idols are not stupid people. You know, we tend to, like, kind of read back with our knowledge of what happened and go, like, oh, how did, how did they not know? But we could all try today to think up what our idols are, like, right now, and we wouldn't be able to see them. <laughs> like, we just wouldn't be able to see them. The problem is, you know, you may have heard that phrase, the fish in the bowl doesn't know it's wet, you know? Like, we actually, like, the fish doesn't know what it is to be dry. We don't know what it's like to not be in this capitalist, consumerist empire. We don't know. We cannot read this stuff. We cannot sit down and discern our own idols. And if we do try to find those things, you know what we normally end up doing, which I hope no one does from this series, is we identify that thing that actually is like a self-improvement we want to make in ourselves, and then we just try to life hack ourselves into being a better Christian. That's not what this is about. That is not what this is about. I don't want anyone going away from here feeling like they need to go to the gym more. Or we've kind of missed the point. So God, because we, the fish in the bowl, doesn't know it's wet. Because we are incapable of discerning our own idols. God has to send a prophet or a spirit of prophecy into our midst. Like he did when Moses came down the mountain to awaken the people from their thunder. He has to send a prophetic spirit for us to wake up. It's the same thing he did with Isaiah, the same thing he did with Jonah, the same thing he did with Elijah. We could go on and on and on and on, where God must bring an outside voice, whether it is a person or the prophetic voice of the spirit, in order to name those things we can't possibly see around ourselves. I remember um, a few, uh, couple of years ago, Anna and I were in Ethiopia, um, and some of you will know the longer story of this, but I'm going to tell it short. Um, we ended up on like, this horrible road trip with people we didn't know and fears that we would lose our kidneys. Um, and, uh, and, and basically we had this plan of where we would go and what we would do on this trip and how it was all going to work out. And as we are travelling with these two guys we'd randomly met on the street in Addis Ababa, gradually the plans and the agreements we'd made on where we would go started to fall apart. And we realised they weren't taking us where we wanted to go at all. We actually found out later on, we're going like, ah, we just paid for their trip home to visit their relatives. (laughs) And it was this kind of like crazy experience. Um, And and I just remember this one morning just feeling so furious. I was sitting on the side of this road waiting for us to go. We'd got up at 6am to go and... See, I can't even remember what it was. And, and we're just sitting on the side of this road until 9.45, like 3 hours 45, waiting for where we're supposed to be going. We're not going there. And then every now and then, our, our guides, these two guys, would come and talk with some other Ethiopian people in their own language in front of us and make little laughs. And we're like, you know, you're just like, what the heck is going on? And I felt this rage kind of bubble up inside me. I started to become more and more furious. And I kind of sat there. I think I even pounded my fist a couple of times into the dirt. I was just so furious. And then I just felt this gentle whisper of the Spirit say, this is the first time you've ever been powerless. This is the first time where people have talked about you in front of your face in another language without talking to you. This is the first time where you have not been able to decide where you want to go, when you want to go there. God needs to send a prophetic spirit into our midst to identify those idols that live within us. For me, that idol was autonomy, was the need to decide what I needed to do when I wanted to do it and to be in control of whoever I was doing it with. And it's a, it's a painful moment. And this is, what, this is what Jesus did. He came to an idolatrous religious culture and named it and one thing he said, Matthew eleven six, was blessed are those who don't get offended by me. Blessed are those who don't get offended by me. Scotty Reeve paraphrase. <laughs> and when our idols are called out, many of us will be tempted to be offended. Now, I'm not saying any of these things I'm about to say are necessarily idols, but they may flag some things for you. What if the Spirit says your sexual practices are an idol? Would you be offended? What if the Spirit says your dietary requirements are an idol? Would you be offended? What if the Spirit says your savings account is an idol? Would you be offended? What if the Spirit says your yoga practice is an idol? Would you be offended? What if the Spirit says your independence and your need for space is an idol? Would you be offended? What if the Spirit says the very way you worship God is an idol and you hold to it too tightly? Would you be offended? Blessed are those who are not offended by me. Now, some of those things, they may not be idols for you. But if you feel a tug in your heart and a frustration that I would even dare to mention it, then maybe you should follow that prompting. Blessed are those who don't get offended by me. And so the dismantling of an idol will require, firstly, the humility to accept the prophetic spirit, which tells us we are wrong even when we feel offended. To accept the prophet. Everyone kills a prophet. They kill John. They kill Jesus. People kill prophets. But the humility when a prophet comes to say, I will welcome that voice even though it hurts like hell," And then secondly, to have the courage to change from that place. Point three, you cannot see your own idolatry. I can't see your idolatry. The fish in the bowl does not know it's wet. A challenge to your idolatry will offend you and you will have to have humility before the prophetic spirit of God to receive it. So there's three things. One, idols arise from our need for security. Number two, they start in the home. Number three, it takes a prophet to save us from them. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to invite that prophetic spirit to come and to speak to each of us. We're going to do prayer ministry, and, um, and it really is my heart's cry that, again, I just say it again, that we do not try to life hack our lives with what we think we need to do better. Like, if you, feel, if, if, you, if you feel a conviction, which is, I should blah, 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 it's probably not a conviction. It's probably self-improvement. That's not what we're after tonight. What we want is the Spirit of God to meet with each of us and bring conviction to our hearts about that thing that we just can't even see it's not the thing you've been thinking for weeks I should really get get a grip on that you know it's the thing you're not thinking about we want the spirit to come and talk to us about the places of fear where we've built an idol out of a desire for security to illuminate for us the little actions we do every day that worship at the altar of an idol Psalm 139, 23, 24 this is what we want to do search me O God And know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is an offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So, we're going to have a time of repentance tonight, and I know this is heavy. And so, what I want to do is front load our time of repentance, front load our time of the Spirit speaking with some truth. That if you fall into a place of life hacking, or you fall into a place of of condemnation rather than conviction, the difference between those. Conviction: God will speak to a specific thing in your life and he will give you a way out. He will give you a way to respond to that, to repent. Condemnation is, I am broken, I am bad. Okay? If it's not specific, we're not in the right wheelhouse. So that's some truth around that. Lies, I think, that the enemy can try to tell us as we go on this journey of repentance. One of them can be, that one of the metaphors that is used for what Christ does is that he is the light that comes and exposes all darkness. And for many of us, we may have had experiences in our lives where we were exposed, and the emotion related to that was always humiliation. That when we were exposed, when we were seen for who we really are, that was a negative experience. The difference here with God is that God exposes in order that he may bring healing. God exposes in order that he may bring healing. Another lie is sold to a one here is that correction is rejection. That if God is bringing correction to you, it is because he does not love you. That is not the case. Correction is not rejection. And then to carry on from that, a truth I want to give you guys, and we need to pray these over because it's going to be like a bit of a battle for some of us. Like Some of us just want to leap right into self-condemnation right now. And that's not where we want to go. We want the conviction of the Spirit. Hebrews 12.6 God disciplines those he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his sons and daughters. God disciplines those he loves and chastens those he accepts as his sons and daughters. If God is pinpointing a hard thing in your life, it is not because God is done with you and he hates you. It is because you are his daughter or his son. And because he disciplines those he loves. And so that's where we want to go with this. Is, you know, like, I think sometimes the journey with repentance is actually it's like we have this wound within us. And we never quite healed it upright. And it's kind of been allowed to fester. And the pain of repentance is the moment of reopening that wound and saying, God, let's actually clean this thing out right this time. And let's actually bring healing into it. This is part of the healing journey. It is not a spiral down into self-hatred because in the end we are made in the image of God we are his children and he loves us he loves us he loves us but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are is that cool all right what I'm going to do is just open Eugene can you jump up here a second going to do is is pray. Why don't we all close our eyes? Mm -hmm. Loving God, from whom no secrets are hidden, we invite your prophetic spirit to come and disrupt us, to awaken us, Lord, we invite your loving, redeeming spirit that disciplines us because you love us, because we are your sons and daughters, to come and speak to us and awaken us to the idolatry we cannot see in ourselves. Lord, we ask your spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy
1: Spirit. I
0: feel like there's a word for someone who is um, feels particularly fearful about this, and God is saying, "I am gentle, yes, that's true. And loving. gentle and loving." He is not going to yank out the stitches. He will be gentle with you. But he wants you to be whole. Come Holy Spirit. Feel to the Spirit reminding us that all through the history of God's relationship with humanity, no matter how many idols they worshipped, he never gave up on us. And he has brought us back again and again and again. That the father, when the prodigal son came home, was not angry with him, did not harbour judgment towards him, but killed the fatted calf put a robe around him, put a ring on his finger and welcomed him home and said, I rejoice for my son has come home.